Acts chapter 4 this evening as we continue our study through the book of Acts, the works of the Lord Jesus Christ, the continuing works of him and the person of the Holy Spirit as seen in the lives of the apostles. I was taught in school and by society growing up that all religions were equally valid and equally valuable. But what I found when I became a believer is that the Bible did not agree with that. And so at first, I remember as an unbeliever sitting over here, right over in those pews, hearing the gospel preached, and I thought to myself, I don't even know that that's real. And then after I became a believer, I struggled with the idea that the Bible said that the only way to the Father is through Jesus Christ, that you can't just go up any pathway that would lead you to God, but that the Bible said that there were specific ones. Uh, I grew up as the word is relativistic, which means that there, everything's relative. There's no absolute truth. And then I became a believer and found out, well, God gives absolute truth. And so I had a hard time dealing with that because I thought to myself, everyone's going to think that I sound arrogant. People are going to think that I'm a bigot if I go around telling them that there is only one way to God. Most people in our society, I would say today, are uncomfortable with the idea that there's only one right or only one true religion. People would think it's not polite, it's bigoted, it's arrogant to say otherwise. And so, does God's word really say that? That Christianity is the only true religion? And what does it mean if Christianity is the only true religion for all of the other world religions that are out there? Hinduism, Buddhism, uh, Judaism, uh, Islam. What, what does it say about all of those? And so, if... Christianity is the true faith, then what kind of Christianity, right? Because there's a lot of different beliefs that would consider themselves to be Christian. Which one is the only right one? Is it just one of them or is it all of them? And if it's true that there is only one way to God, should we still talk about it even if it upsets people and makes things awkward? Could there be more than one way to God or to heaven? Well, the apostles Peter and John are arrested and imprisoned for preaching about Jesus Christ and for saying that he is the only way. And during their interrogation, they make an enormous claim that we have to look at tonight. So let's see it for ourselves in Acts chapter 4, beginning in verse number 1. Acts chapter 4, beginning in verse number 1. The word of God says this, And as they spake unto the people, the priests and the captain of the temple, and the Sadducees came upon them, being grieved that they taught the people and preached through Jesus the resurrection from the dead. And they laid hands on them and put them in hold unto the next day, for it was now eventide. Howbeit many of them which heard the word believed, and the number of men was about five thousand. And it came to pass on the morrow that their rulers and elders and scribes and Annas the high priest and Caiaphas and John and Alexander and as many as were of the kindred of the high priest were gathered together at Jerusalem. And when they had set them in the midst, they asked, By what power or by what name have ye done this? Then Peter, filled with the Holy Ghost, said unto them, Ye rulers of the people and elders of Israel, if we this day be examined of the good deed done to the impotent man, by what means he is made whole, be it known unto you all and to all the people of Israel that by the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, whom ye crucified, whom God raised from the dead, even by him doth this man stand here before you whole. 
This is the stone which was set at naught of you builders, which has become the head of the corner. Neither is there salvation in any other, for there is none other name under heaven given among men whereby we must be saved. Let's pray together. Father, open your word to us this evening. I pray that your spirit would guide us into truth. Deliver us from distraction and from all of the worries and troubles of the day and what waits for us tomorrow that we might meet with you here now. In Jesus' name, amen. By this time in the book of Acts, we know that the Lord Jesus Christ has already died on the cross, was buried, and rose again from the grave on the third day. He showed himself alive to the apostles and to over 500 brethren at one time, and then he ascended uh, on high to be seated at the right hand of the Father, and he liveth forevermore. And he charged his disciples, the early church, that they go out and give the good news of the forgiveness of sins and eternal life through Jesus Christ to everybody. And by the time we get to this passage, they waited for the Spirit of God to come in power. The church was empowered at Pentecost. They preached forth the Word of God. Thousands of people were saved and baptized. And now we read in chapter 4 what happens after Peter and John went into the temple And on their way into the temple, they ran into a man who was begging. And he was begging by one of the large gates that led onto the temple grounds. And that man was lame. He could not get up. He could not walk. He could not work. He was disabled and really useless to society because they didn't have the kind of programs that people might have today. And so you became a beggar or a burden on your family. And his habit was to ask alms or small gifts for the poor of people that went in to the worship at the temple. And he asked Peter, and Peter says, uh, gold and silver have I none, but such as I have, I give unto thee. And he said, in the name of the Lord Jesus, arise and walk. And so a miracle happened right there in the temple. And remember, the people in Jerusalem were divided. Many of them at first welcomed Jesus when he came in during that Passion Week. But then by the end of the week, they joined in with the unbelieving leaders of Israel, yelling for Jesus to be crucified and helped hand him over to Rome for that to happen. So there's great contention about Jesus in the city. And the man leaps up after he's been healed, gets so excited, and as Peter and John walk into the temple, he's hanging all over them, praising God and shouting, and a crowd forms, and Peter, being ready, preaches the gospel to them. Well, things are so hectic, and you'll see here in a moment that we had thousands of people that were listening throughout the day to them. Thousands of people came, that the rulers, the people who were in charge of the temple, those that were not believers in Jesus, who in fact saw him as a threat, who were part of the conspiracy to see him destroyed, they come and shut down this impromptu preaching session. That's what's going on here in verse number one of chapter four. And as they spake unto the people, the priests and the captain of the temple and the Sadducees came upon them. The priests were those people in the temple that were charged with the duties of uh, offering incense and prayers of the sacrifices. They were the people who were in charge of the day in, day out administration of the temple. The captain of the temple was the captain of the guard. They had their own police force, if you want to think about it, little paramilitary organization. These are the same people that would have taken Jesus on the night before he was crucified. They would have found him in the garden, arrested him, and hauled him away to false trial. But then there's this other group called the Sadducees. The Sadducees were one of two major groups that had power in the leadership of the children of Israel. 
Rome ruled over Israel, but they were allowed to make a lot of their own decisions. And this group of unbelieving Jewish people, the Sadducees, they were known for being the liberal theologians of the day. You say, what does that mean? Is that how they voted? No, it doesn't have anything to do with liberal or conservative politics. What it means is that they did not take the word of God literally. They did not take the word of God literally. And the Sadducees were upset, it says in verse number two, being grieved that they taught the people and preached through Jesus the resurrection from the dead. What you'll find if you study the Sadducees is they didn't really believe in the supernatural parts of the Old Testament. In fact, they only listened to the first five books of Scripture, considering it to be Scripture and authoritative. So only the Pentateuch, only the books of Moses, the first five books, is all that they listened to. They did not believe in angels or demons. They did not believe in the resurrection of the dead. They took all of the supernatural stuff out of the Old Testament, and they were known for a few other things as well. They were buddy-buddy with Rome. They were also very well connected among the wealthy classes of people, and they really didn't adhere to this idea that there was anything after death. Now, there was another side of the Jewish people that were very strict. And that was the Pharisees. And the Pharisees and the Sadducees were always at odds with each other. The Pharisees thought that they were compromisers, and the Sadducees thought that the Pharisees were unreasonable in their regulation and how they lived. And neither one of these groups endorsed Jesus. In fact, both of them disliked Jesus, and they tried to destroy him. And they actually came together, two parties that were so very different came together to destroy Jesus because they were so worried about the power that he had over the people. It says in verse 2, they were grieved, they were strongly annoyed that they were here, Peter and John were here, preaching about the resurrection of the dead, preaching Jesus Christ. Don't be surprised when you get pushback from talking about the Lord Jesus Christ. It happened from the very beginning of the church. They were there in the holiest of places where they should have been the most receptive of the message of God's Messiah. Here are God's people in God's temple dedicated to the worship of God, hearing about God's Messiah, but they didn't want any bit of it. And so they were coming in order to shut it down. By the way, I want you to know that supernatural things are a part of biblical Christianity. We have a hard time as Westerners oftentimes accepting that there are spirits, ministering spirits, which are the angels, and uh, spirits set for our destruction, evil spirits, demons, fallen angels. We have a hard time with the idea that prayer can make a physical difference. We have a hard time believing that there's a battle for the souls of men and women and boys and girls going on behind the scenes. We have a hard time because we, we like everything very neat and tidy and clinical. We want formulas. We want clinical studies. We want scientific answers. We want everything to be nice and neat and wrapped up in a bow of what we can see and understand. That's what the West is like. Now, you go some places, and the missionaries have a very different time. So, for example, my, my missionary friends that are in England or in Canada, they deal with the same kind of skepticism when people talk about Satan, when people talk about the working of the Spirit of God, but you go into some of these countries where they still believe in animism and spiritism, whether it's African countries or South American countries, and they have no trouble at all believing that through prayer, God really does heal people, or through prayer, God really does 
cast out demons or that people can even be possessed by demons. If you would have asked me as a, as a 16-year-old, 17-year-old young man who first came to church for the first time over here, if I believed in demons or I believed in Satan, I would have laughed at you. And I would have said, of course not. We all know better than that. None of that is real. I want you to know that all of that is real. And as much as we don't like to admit that, we will find ourselves, even as Westerners in our mindset, we'll find ourselves denying things in the scripture if we want to have nice, clean, scientific answers for everything. Science is not opposed to the Bible. In fact, what you'll find is that the science that the Bible teaches, it's not a science book, but where it does speak on science, it's always right. And it's been centuries ahead of what secular scientists throughout history have believed. It's only in recent years, only in the last 150, 200 years, that people somehow got the idea that the Bible and science didn't come together. The great histor historical scientists of our culture in the West, they have been Christian people. They have been believers in God. This is only a more recent thing that happened since the beginning of the 1900s. I want you to know that the supernatural reality of things is a part. Angels, demons, the work of the Holy Spirit, that is not metaphor, that is literal, and it's real. We don't want to find ourselves in the same group as these Sadducees. It says in verse number three that they laid hands on them and put them in hold unto the next day, for it was now eventide. They got arrested. They got arrested. Peter and John got arrested in the temple for talking about the Messiah, for talking about Jesus. They were taken and they were put in hold. They were taken into custody. I don't know if they had some sort of jail or if they just threw them in a closet or if they put them in a room under guard, but they weren't allowed to leave. <clears throat> they had been preaching there, coming into the morning, most likely, to the temple to worship, as was common. And they stayed there all day talking about Jesus. And it was too late in the day to put together a trial. And so they were, they were told that they had to stay. And so they did. Verse number five. And it came to pass on the morrow that their rulers and elders and scribes, let's go ahead and read verse 6 too, and Annas the high priest and Caiaphas and John and Alexander and as many as were of the kindred of the high priest were gathered together at Jerusalem. You want to talk about a meeting of powerful people. This was it. This was it. They gathered together all of the decision makers, all of the people that were high priest or used to be high priest or were influential family members of the high priest. They got together the rulers. They got together the elders. They got together the scribes, the people who studied the law, who made the decisions and who led the Jewish life in the city of Jerusalem. And they all gathered together. And you know what they did? They put some fishermen in the midst of them. Can you imagine in all of their robes and all of their regalia set wherever they were, whatever meeting place that they were in? And it says in verse number seven, and when they had set them in the midst. So you can imagine a room perhaps with people sitting all around, the staring faces, the accusing glances, and you take Peter and you take John, and they probably weren't dressed in any notable way. They had spent the night in jail or some equivalent thereof probably didn't have a chance to freshen up much and they were brought out and they were set in the midst of this august body and you could imagine lesser men with a lesser message would have been intimidated and perhaps would have been cowed by all of these stern learned educated powerful people looking down on them in verse number seven they asked a question they began to interrogate them by what power or by what name have ye done this 
By what power or by what name? See, here's the problem. When something happens and people say, it was a miracle and no one was there to see it, they can hush that up pretty quickly. The problem was, here is a man who in sight of all the people coming and going into the temple and the people that happened to be in the temple after he was healed and all the people that saw him day in and day out laying as a lame man with his withered legs by that gate, they all knew who the man was and they all saw the miracle and now they could no longer deny it. They could no longer cover it up. You say, is this the kind of people that would cover up a miracle from God for their own ends? You only have to look back in any of the gospel records to see what they did with the Lord Jesus Christ. They were willing to lie about him. They were willing to bring false witness against him. They were willing to try and paint him as something he wasn't so that Rome would execute him. They were willing to do whatever it took in order to destroy him. They wanted to destroy his public image. They wanted the people to turn on him. They wanted to find some rule that he had broken so they could get rid of him. Because Jesus Christ was a threat to their power. Jesus Christ was a threat to their hold over the people because the people followed after him. And they wanted to know by what power or by what name. What authority, what name did you use? I want you to know that names in the Bible mean more than just the sounds that you make to get someone's attention. The names in the Bible oftentimes had deep meaning and they were associated with the entire person their entire character, and their authority or power, if they had any. So they wanted to know by what power or by what name did they do this miracle. Perhaps they thought that they had called on uh, some secret name of God for this to be done, or some angel, or perhaps some even demon that they did this in order to create this miracle. And they wanted to know how they did it so that they could discredit it and that they could discredit them. Names are important. Think about it like this. If someone pounded on the door and say, open in the name of the law, you know, what what is that? Well, that's somebody, probably a police officer, who wants in, who has the authority given to them by the law to do what it is that they're about to do. And in verse number eight, then Peter, filled with the Holy Ghost, said unto them, note that phrase, filled with the Holy Ghost. That doesn't mean a little bit. That means all of him. He was completely filled by the Holy Ghost. You say, what does that mean? We find that when the church was empowered by the Spirit of God, the Spirit of God came to live inside of those believers. In the Old Testament, there were certain heroes of the faith that displayed supernatural power or wisdom, whether it was strength ability in war, uh, the writing of scripture, the understanding of prophecy, the, the spirit would come on somebody for a period of time and then would leave. It was not something that stayed. But now things have changed and the spirit of God lives in the heart of every person that is called on Jesus Christ as their savior. It's referred to as the indwelling of the Holy Spirit. You never get any more of the spirit than what you have now. You don't need a second baptism of the spirit. The spirit came to live inside of you when you got saved. What it means to be filled with the Spirit is something different than just being indwelt by the Spirit. When you're filled with the Spirit, it means that the Spirit has full control over you. It's out of the scope of our sermon for tonight, so we won't turn there. But it talks about instead of being filled with wine, be filled with the Spirit. When you are filled with wine, you are under the sway of alcohol. 
Not just your feet get drunk, not just your legs get drunk, not just your arms get drunk, not just your mind gets drunk. All of you is affected by it. It affects every bit of you. And the same word is used in saying that that's how the spirit ought to be. The spirit ought to have full reign and full control. See, they didn't have any more of the spirit of God than you and I had. It's just that the spirit of God had more of them. The spirit of God was able to fully work in their lives as they were fully yielded. And at this moment, Peter was fully yielded. And isn't that wonderful that Peter was fully yielded? Because I remember not too long ago in our study of the Gospel of Luke, Peter was so cowardly, he pretended not to know who Jesus was. If ever there was a moment to stand up and identify with Jesus Christ, it should have been that moment when Jesus was taken and put on false trial in the high priest's house in the middle of the night. John went in, and he was bold about it, but when it came time for Peter, Peter said, I don't even know who you're talking about. I don't know that man. No, you've got somebody else. And he cursed, and he swore, and he pretended not to know Jesus, and he was ashamed of it afterwards. And here, what a change has happened in Peter's life. If you find yourself less than bold, if you find yourself scared to stand up for the Lord Jesus Christ, there is more than hope. There was a promise that if you and I in the power of the Spirit, seek to speak boldly for Jesus, he will meet us there, and we too can speak as Peter is about to speak. He says in verse number eight, ye rulers of the people and elders of Israel. He knew who he was speaking to. No, no mistake. Verse 10, be it known unto you all, excuse me, verse number nine, if we this day be examined of the good deed done to the impotent man, by what means he is made whole, he, they're being examined. They're being interrogated. And you know what they're being interrogated for? You know what they're being put on trial for? They helped somebody. They helped somebody and they got in trouble for it because it wasn't done in the way that they thought it ought to be done. It wasn't done in a way that they could control or they could monetize or that they could spin for their own benefit. It was done by the power of God and not the power of man. And that threatened the people who rule by the power of man. And so here they are asking and he said if you want to know if you want to know how um this good deed was done to this impotent man and you say who is the impotent man what does that mean remember when we look at scripture and when we look at our king james version of the bible which is the version of the bible that we ought to be using in the english-speaking world we are reading elizabethan english and so we need to understand the words as that would have been spoken at the time that this was translated because some of you are looking at the word impotent right now and you're like i can't believe that they said that out loud how embarrassing that must have been for that man it's not meaning what you think it means impotent means he was disabled he had no power he was he was completely unable to move he was incapacitated, he was ill, he was weak. So when it talks about this man there, it's talking about a man who had no power in and of himself, and now he's been made whole. He was disabled, and now he is fully able. That's what it means. They said, so if you want to know by how this was done, by what means, verse 10, be it known unto you all and to all the people of Israel that by the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, he says, I want you to know, and in fact, we want everybody to know this wasn't us. This was Jesus Christ of Nazareth. And they think to themselves, oh boy, here we go again. I thought we got rid of him. Didn't we put him to death? Didn't we make his followers scared? Didn't they all run and hide when we took him in the garden? Didn't we put this thing to bed? Didn't we cover ourselves? No, nope, here they are back again, willing to speak to them about it. 
Be it known unto you all and to all the people of Israel that by the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, whom ye crucified. I want you to know that no man took Jesus Christ's life. He laid it down. No man had the power to take it from him, but he had the power to lay it down to take it back up again. You see, when Jesus died, it wasn't an accident. It wasn't a tragedy. It was an act of sacrifice where he died for you and for me. He died so that you and I could have our sins forgiven because a punishment should have been leveled at us, but instead it was placed upon the Lord Jesus when he willingly went to the cross to die for the sins of every man, woman, boy, and girl in this world. Whoever had been born, whoever will be born. He bore the sins for all of them. That wrath of God that was poured out on him should have been poured out on us. But the important thing to know is he willingly chose for that to happen. He knew it was going to happen. And he still went forward with it. The human instruments by which he was taken into trial and given to the Romans and crucified were these people. But they didn't kill him. He allowed it to happen. But they were still guilty in their part for what they did. It says, whom ye crucified, whom God raised from the dead. You may have played a part in seeing him die, but the Lord raised him up on the third day. He is not dead. He is alive forevermore. Notice what they're giving here, the gospel. Jesus was crucified and he rose again. Jesus of Nazareth, who God raised up from the dead. The fact that they called him Jesus Christ. By the way, Jesus' last name was not Christ. This was a title referring to Jesus the Christ, Jesus the Messiah, the chosen one, the deliverer, the promised one. This is the anointed one. This is the Christ, the Messiah. He was known as Jesus of Nazareth. People didn't have surnames in the same way that you and I do today, but he was called this. So Peter was being very explicit when he talked about Jesus the Christ. Even by him doth this man stand here before you whole. This man who was ruined and broken and wrecked was made whole by Jesus Christ. That gives me great hope because you know what that is? By the name of Jesus Christ, you and I can be made whole. If you don't know Christ as Savior and you find yourself perhaps not physically incapable, physically disabled, but in your own heart and mind consumed by bitterness, by anger, by lust, sin seems to have its rule over you, whether it's through addiction or whether it's just through pride, Jesus Christ can take the broken things and make them whole. He can take you and make you full again without any lacking. Verse number 11, this is the stone which was set at naught of you builders, which has become the head of the corner. That seems out of nowhere. What in the world does that mean? Here is this unlearned fisherman who spent some time with Jesus, and now he knows enough of the Old Testament in order to quote it back at the scribes and the Sadducees. And I'm sure the Pharisees were in attendance. This is Psalm 118. Psalm 118 in verse number 22. This phrase is found in the Old Testament. The stone which the builders refused has become the head corner, excuse me, the head stone of the corner. I don't, I don't build very much, but I do know how important a foundation is. I do know how important a foundation is. If you build something and you don't have a solid foundation, as the ground freezes, as the ground thaws, as time passes, as water seeps in and things swell, and as they contract when it dries out, your building will end up shifting and it will end up becoming unstable. 
Jesus talked about what happens if you build on the sand versus building on a solid rock. He used that as a teaching for whether or not you listen to the word of God or whether you ignore the word of God. Here, I want you to think that builders are looking through a bunch of stone that's been cut and they're going to place it into a wall, into a building, and then they're going to mortar it and place another stone and they're going to mortar it and place another stone. And that's how they were building buildings in the Bible lands. They didn't have all the lumber that you and I have, but guess what they had plenty of? Rocks. There were a lot of rocks in the Bible lands. Much of why there's still so much there that you and I can go and see is because they built everything out of stone. And because it was everywhere, they would look at the stones that were gathered and they were going to build something and they'd put that into place and then they'd mortar all around it and put another one into place. And if this didn't fit or it didn't look good, they would just toss it out and move to the next rock. But you know what was important was where you started. Because if you didn't start right, you weren't going to end right. And do you know where you started? The cornerstone. You started at the cornerstone. If the cornerstone was wrong, everything else was going to be wrong. If the cornerstone was right, you had a chance to make everything else right. So what he was saying to them, quoting back to them, was saying, you looked at Jesus and you said, nothing. You evaluated him. He's worthless. We don't want him. They did away with him. But not only did you make the mistake by saying he's worthless, he's actually the foundation of everything. He is the most important piece, and you missed it. Verse number 12, and here we get into some trouble. Neither is there salvation in any other, for there is none other name under heaven given among men whereby we must be saved. This is an enormous claim. This is an enormous claim. The, the, the repercussions, the consequences of this are huge and far-reaching. No salvation outside of Jesus Christ. That's what this means. In context, what Peter was saying is, you, though you are followers of the God of the Old Testament, and you claim to be in the line of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, you claim to be followers of Moses, you claim to this tradition of David in the Old Testament, I want you to know, no matter how hard you hold to your rules, if you don't have Jesus, you will not be saved. You cannot ignore the Messiah and still hope to have a relationship with the Father. If you ignore the Messiah, you cannot be saved from your sins. Without Jesus, there is no salvation. He was saying that because they were still believing, even if it was just lip service, in the God of Jesus, but they refused to believe in Jesus as the Son of God. They were willing to take most of what God was doing, but they left out a part of it, which was Jesus the Messiah, which turned out to be the most important part. He says... In verse 12, for there is none other name under heaven given among men. No matter how far and wide you look, no matter where you go around the world, it says under heaven, that means the, the breadth of as far as you can go, there is no other name. There is no other name. There will not be another Messiah. It's a sad thing to consider today that many people that follow Orthodox Judaism or Reform Judaism are still waiting for some Messiah when their Messiah has already come. There will never be another Messiah because Messiah is here. The Lord Jesus has already arrived. And so it says that you won't find it. And if anyone is going to be saved, they must be saved through the Lord Jesus Christ. That is what they were referring to. But let's think about modern day religions. This also means that Islam, Hinduism, Buddhism, non-Messianic Judaism... 
any cults that add doing good deeds to your salvation or believing on Mary or some sort of act of confirmation or baptism or catechism or joining a church, anybody that adds anything to salvation other than simple faith in Jesus Christ or anybody who leaves Jesus out, that religion is false religion. So what that means is Islam is a false religion. Buddhism is a false religion. Hinduism is a false religion. Christless Christianity is a false religion. That is not popular to say. That is not popular to say. But it's what the Bible says. It's what the Bible says. Many sincere people believe what they believe, but they will wind up in hell. And that is a horrible thought. We should never be, as God's children, excited or gleeful that some people we view as our enemies are going to end up in hell. Remember what Christ did in order to keep people out of hell. Remember all that God gave in giving his only begotten son that whosoever believeth in him should not perish but have everlasting life. This isn't a hooray, our team wins. That's not what this is about. It's that they need Jesus Christ. Have you ever gotten bad advice when you were sick? Have you ever had a doctor maybe give you the wrong medicine or the pharmacist give you the wrong medicine? How many of you have experienced that? That's not much fun. That's not much fun, especially if you have an allergic reaction to it. I want you to imagine that something is desperately wrong with you. Imagine that something is terminally wrong with you medically. And you are going to a certain doctor who is prescribing a certain treatment or a certain medicine. And you're taking that medicine and you're trusting because you've listened to that doctor and you've done as much research and you're trusting that that is going to help you and bring you through this terminal situation only to find out that it's not enough. Only to find out that it will not cure what's wrong with you. Only to find out that the doctor is wrong and the people who made the medicine are wrong and the people who dispense the medicine are wrong. What a tragic thing. There's a course of treatment over here that would be right and it would be enough to save you. But over here, it's wrong. And that doctor might wholeheartedly believe that what he's doing is right. And the pharmacologist who made the medicine might believe that it's right. And the pharmacist who dispenses it to you might believe that this is what's going to help you. But if it's wrong and you are convinced that it's right, it's a tragedy. It's a tragedy. And that's what happens with false religion. And guess who we have to thank for false religion? The enemy. The enemy. Do you know it's a lot easier to trick people with something that looks good than something they can tell is bad? You see, well-meaning religious people are, are, are believing a lie that is very close to the truth. They're believing a lie that's very close to the truth. You know how crafty the devil is? In Buddhism, there's a, a certain... Buddha or person or being that had reached enlightenment named Amida. But Amida Buddha refused to go all the way into heaven. And Amida Buddha stayed partway between heaven and earth to make a bridge for people that didn't have time to devote themselves to meditation and to the life of a monk so that they could achieve nirvana, they could achieve enlightenment. They couldn't do that. So she became what's known as a bodhisattva, which is an intermediary between... The, the true Buddha and mankind. 
And if you, by faith, in the name of Amida Buddha, call out in one true moment in Amida Buddha, then you, when this life is over, will make it to the Pure Lands because of the work that Amida Buddha did on your behalf and staying halfway in between nirvana and mankind. Does that sound like anything to anybody else? Does that sound like the great value brand? A knockoff brand that you bought on wish.com of something? Does that sound like a, a poor excuse for the real? It is. You know why? The most dangerous lie is the lie that's closest to the truth. And so the enemy puts it for us to create distraction, to create false paths that people think will lead them to where they need to go. You may have heard the idea that uh, many roads lead to God. The sad thing is many roads lead to dead ends. But only Jesus Christ, who said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No man cometh unto the Father but by me. Only that way leads to God. So how do we apply this sobering thought tonight? First of all, we should speak about Christ even when others dislike it. We should speak about Christ even when others dislike it. Peter and John must have known that they'd get in trouble for preaching Christ in the middle of the temple when certainly the enemies of Jesus would hear it. But you know what they did? They did it anyway. Because the message was that important. The message is that important. They knew that the non-believing Jewish leadership who tried to destroy Jesus would destroy them. Would try to. That despised Jesus would despise them. They faced arrest and punishment for it. And when you and I speak up about the Lord Jesus, some people will not like it. Some people will not like it. They may even get angry. But we don't want to speak it to make other people angry. We're not trying to cause conflict. But we recognize that when people are confronted with the message that they're sinners in need of a Savior, they're going to be offended. Do you know why? It's offensive. But it's also true. I didn't like the idea that I was a sinner. Man, I thought I was pretty good. I wasn't, but I was convinced I was. If you had asked me, did I measure up, I most certainly didn't measure up to what God asked of me. But I was offended, and I thought the idea of needing a Savior to be saved was despicable because of what it said about me. Unfortunately, it was true. And fortunately, God was merciful and patient. And I came to faith in Christ. We need to speak up when it'll cost us something. Right now, all it really costs us in most situations where we live is that some people won't like us. Some people will choose not to associate with us at work. Certain neighbors won't be excited when you come around. I had a neighbor who purposefully hid from me when I would come around. He always had a reason why he, he would not be at home because he was afraid I was going to get him. Like I was going to, he's going to get religion by being too close to me. Like he would catch it, right? It's sad because he eventually died. And I think he died without Christ. I, I don't know, but he, he was always very standoffish about that. When we speak up, it will cost us that. But it, it cost Peter and John something more. They actually got in trouble with the government. These are the people who were making the major decisions. And it's, it's sad to think about this. But it is becoming more and more likely that those of us who speak the name of Jesus and, and are Bible-believing Christians will become more and more at odds with the government. Just because of the direction it's going, because of the morality that the government is choosing to enshrine into law, which is immorality, 
because good is called evil and evil is called good, you and I will eventually face pressure. It's happened in different places. I can remember a friend of mine named Johnny Pope, who's a pastor in the Dallas area. And the mayor of Dallas was a woman who hated God and wanted and didn't like, she was a, a lesbian and did not like any messages against anything that was LGBTQ. And so she thought that she was going to audit all of the sermons preached from all of the churches in the Dallas area that were under her control. And so she said that they had to submit all of the sermons that they were going to preach to her office. I'll let you know how that worked out. Try it in Texas. I mean, what, what was she thinking? You could get away with it maybe in Massachusetts or something, but you're not going to get away with it there. And so that didn't work out. That was years ago. We already see things happening in Canada and in different parts of the world where if you say certain things are sinful, it's considered a hate crime. It's considered a hate crime. And it's not going to be long before you and I will face it here unless the Lord uh, returns soon or there's some other great awakening. It might mean we sacrifice our reputation with certain people. It might mean that people's good opinion of us is lost. But really, I would much rather have those people know how they can be saved and not want to be around me again than to have them be around me time and time again and think that I'm an okay guy but then never hear the gospel. There are few things that I'm willing to lose my friends over, but this should be one of those things that we're willing to lose them over. Not that every time we see them, we're beating them over the head with the Bible, but if you love your friends, if you love your family members, then out of love, there should be a time when we sit down and explain the gospel to them. It's very important. They may not want to hear it. I've got some people that are a little bit leery about what I'm going to talk about at Thanksgiving dinner when our extended family gets together, or at Christmas, because they have a, fa a feeling that the preacher might preach, and they're not too wrong. Speak about Christ, even though others dislike it. Second of all, recognize that all Christless, Christless religion is false religion. This is hard because our society, even if you don't know the word for it, champions pluralism. Pluralism means that there's value in all religions, in all religious texts that diversity by itself is a value, whether it's good or bad, and all of it should be tolerated. What I want you to know is that we shouldn't be um, mean or nasty or disrespectful to anybody. But there's a great difference in being respectful to a person, or at least being polite to a person, and then agreeing with them. Unfortunately, somehow, over the last couple of decades, we've gotten to the place where if you disagree with somebody, it means you hate them. It's not safe to disagree with anybody anymore, is it? And so we just avoid saying anything because it comes into some sort of argument. It seems completely inappropriate to call someone's sincerely held religious beliefs false. But that's exactly what God's word does. That's exactly what it does. Neither is there salvation in any other. For there is none other name under heaven given among men whereby we must be saved. There's no other way to deal with that other than to recognize that Christ, according to God's word, is the only way to the Father. We can say it nicely, but we still ought to say it. In Christ and in Christ alone is salvation. You ever talk with somebody about the Lord and they think they're ending the conversation by saying, oh, I'm Muslim. Oh, I'm Catholic. Like, oh, uh, I'm, a, I'm a Mormon. And it's though they're saying that and that stops the conversation. 
No, that makes me more likely to continue because they're telling me that they don't have Christ. You know what was really obnoxious about living in the South? Everybody said they were saved. They'd come to the door. You'd hear them cussing out their wife as they made their way there. They got a cigarette in their hand. They opened the door. Whole house smells like pot. Beer bottles all over the place. You start talking with them about the Lord and inviting them to church. Oh, yeah, I got saved in vacation Bible school. All of them said it. You know what was refreshing about coming back up here? Was visiting people and having them be straightforward and say, I'm a witch. And you're like, oh, at least I know where we stand now. And if you think that that's not a real thing, there's a store in North Olmsted that sells the implements for the conduct of witchcraft. It's been here for decades. It's been here for decades. It's a little bit refreshing to know where somebody stands so that you can speak with them about Christ. So then the question then becomes, oh, you're a Catholic. Well, are you a Catholic on your way to heaven or a Catholic on your way to hell? Oh, you're a Buddhist. Are you a Buddhist on your way to heaven or are you a Buddhist on your way to hell? And so we have to press the conversation further. You say, that's really uncomfortable. Yeah, it is. Anybody know why it's so uncomfortable? Who can tell me why it's uncomfortable? What's going on behind the scenes? Anybody know? The devil's working. Do you know what you're doing when you talk with somebody who doesn't know Christ, about Christ? You are engaging in spiritual warfare. You are threatening to take somebody who has been blinded and controlled by the enemy away from him and bringing them over to the kingdom of light. And the kingdom of darkness doesn't like it. And so you can talk with people about all sorts of stuff, but as soon as you bring up Jesus, it becomes terribly hard. You say, what is that? There's a spiritual reality behind it. Christianity isn't true simply because it's our side. That's how many people believe. They think that a Muslim, of course, is going to say that Islam is true, and, and a, a, a modern-day Jewish person is going to say that Judaism is true, and a modern-day Hindu is going to say that because that's what they grew up with, and that's what they understand, and that's the side they're on, and nobody wants to be on the losing side. And everybody thinks, because this is mine, it's good. No. The Christianity, biblical Christianity, was true before I became a believer. It's true, even though I am a believer now. And should I ever lose my faith for some reason, it will still be true. Because it is the word of God. It would be true even if I didn't believe it. So we need to recognize it. As hard a thing as it is in our society, is to recognize that all Christless religion is actually false religion. And remember, that that's anybody who says and talks about God and church and the Bible, but they leave Jesus out of it. Finally, stand firm that Christ is the only way of salvation. I alluded to this earlier, but our godless society is on a collision course with biblical Christianity. We're on a collision course with it. We're increasingly being villainized by media, uh, by certain places online, many places online. People will find this view as unpopular, if not downright immoral. How many of you have seen the bumper stickers? that say things like coexist or tolerance. And all the letters that are, spell out the word are actually symbols from other religions. How many of you have seen that bumper sticker? That's been around for a while. I want you to know this is not about being nasty to people who disagree with us. You can coexist with people that disagree with you. You can 
tolerate people that disagree with you. That doesn't mean that you agree with them. It doesn't mean you endorse them. It doesn't mean that you say that they're right. God's word is true. And Jesus Christ said that he is the only way to the Father. And here, the disciples echo that truth. And so, though society will pressure us into moving away from this, society will pressure us from moving away from this, we must speak up. We must speak up and we must not back down, even if it becomes very uncomfortable. Does anybody, as we have just a couple of questions before our prayer time about our topic tonight, who can tell me, how do we find the courage to stand firm in the face of what is becoming loud opposition? How do we find the courage to stand firm? I want you to think about this for a second. I want you to go into work tomorrow. I want you to show up in the break room. Well, some of you are like, I ain't going to work. I did my time. <laughs> You're only out on parole, Marvin. They can call you back at any moment. No. I want you to imagine that you go in, into some crowded place. Maybe it's the barber shop. Maybe it's the doctor's office in a busy waiting room. And you were to say to somebody in conversation that you believe that Jesus Christ is the only way of salvation. He's the only way to heaven. What kind of feedback do you think you're going to get? I can tell you, in many places, now, now maybe not where I work, but in many places, the other people there are going to be upset. They're going to be upset with that. Even people that say that they're Christians are going to be upset with that. How are you going to stand and have courage even when you're getting browbeat by people? Where does that come from? The Holy Spirit. Being surrendered to Christ so that the Spirit might give you courage. How else might you have courage? Yep, yeah, Jim? It's got to become the most important thing to us. Yes. What else? This is weird, but I find it's easy when I expect it. I find it's easy when I expect it. When I know that people are going to get upset, or they're going to clam up, they're going to be like, oh, that's nice. You know, do one of those things. I, I find that if I already know that that's part of it, and... and that, that helps me to not be surprised when it happens. Because that should be the natural reaction of most people. That should be the natural reaction of most people. Something else that I find is that when I remember how important it is to this person's eternity that they hear it, that help, will help me talk about it anyway. That will help me talk about it anyway. Does anyone have a time that they would be willing to share when you, you shared the good news with somebody and they, they got upset with you? Tony? Yeah. 
It's a hard thing. Anybody else ever have a time when... I've had many times when I've talked, and, and it was well-received. But there have been times when people were not happy. Yeah, Jim? That's intense. Anybody else have? Yes, Chris? Did you die? No, it, you might not have liked it. Oh, Jim, you got another one? sad thing is, it's got our name on it, and so they're going to think that we littered, but I had a weird thing happen when I was in college, and I was growing in my faith, and this kind of took me back. Um, there was a church that started um, not too far outside of Columbus, and our church went to help them um, pass out flyers and knock on doors and tell them that there's a new church starting in their community, and I remember going there, and there was a man outside, and he was cleaning his boat, I think is what it was, and I had never experienced any kind of harsh backlash before. And I walked up to him, I'm like, hey, I just wanted to, to let you know that there's a new church starting in your area, this is the name of it, and I told him a little bit about it. And he turned and looked at me with the loudest voice, he said, do they let Jews in your church? As though that was somehow going to scare me off. And I said, yes. <laughs> and he's like, oh. And then we just awkwardly stared at each other, and then I walked away. I didn't know what to do after that. Why, why would we share those stories? Because we're all okay afterward, aren't we? Yeah, Tony, you got another one? Hmm. Yeah. How, how do we tactfully share the gospel with people that are in false religion? Jewish 
and, and I, as someone who's been on the other side of conversations like that, you really don't know what's going on in somebody's heart, and you don't know what God's going to do with it. And so he took all of the times that people ever spoke with me about Christ, and he drew me out of my atheism and my God-hating into salvation, and he does that with people. And that's a great point about they're not rejecting us, they're rejecting the Lord. Neither is there salvation in any other, for there is none other name under heaven given among men whereby we must be saved. Would you bow your heads and pray with me?